Well, this morning we are starting a series called uh, Truth, Answering Questions People Ask. And I have already been so encouraged by this because we ask you to give us all of the questions, send us all of the questions that you have about your own faith, uh, all of the questions that your friends ask you that stump you, uh, all of the questions that you're afraid they're going to ask you and stump you. And I'm so excited to know that none of you have any questions. Uh, actually, one person sent us a few. Uh, but listen, uh, I know that in these kind of situations, probably most of you thought, I don't want to ask my questions because everybody's going to ask the same questions. Uh, we all know what those questions are. And uh, hopefully I'm going to uh, uh, take care of some of those for you today. Uh, this series was really birthed out of our study in the book of Colossians. We just got through with the book of Colossians. It was a great study for me. Hopefully it was for you. If you missed any of those sermons and you'd like to hear them, uh, you can go to our website at fogkc.com. You can hear all of them there and uh, kind of get caught up. But one of the verses that really struck me in Colossians 4, 6, again, as I read it, was this one. It said, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And every time I read this verse or see this verse somewhere, I always think of uh, 1 Peter 3.15, which says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So there's really two themes in both of these verses. One, just don't be a jerk, okay? Just be nice to people. As you interact with them and, and have con, uh, conversations with them, be gracious, be kind. But also the other theme is be ready. Be ready to answer hard questions about why you believe in this Jesus. Be ready so that you can have a conversation that doesn't uh, uh, hurt your faith, doesn't cause you to question things, but causes others to maybe consider Jesus. Now, as I look at the probably popular top 50 questions uh, there's no way that in three weeks we could answer all those questions and get you fully prepared. So what I want to do this morning is kind of give you a one big answer that probably covers about 15 of those questions so that you'll be able to go back to what you've heard today. And by the way, this particular sermon, and I think the next two weeks as we do this, um, all of these uh, PowerPoints will actually be on the city, which is our church's own private social network. So you can see all of the slides there if you, um, I know you're looking at your notes, you're going, holy cow, it's our book. Not quite. Uh, but almost. And so you'll be able to go back and see all these things if you don't get everything, uh, all the blanks filled out. But listen, folks, God expects us to be able to defend our faith. He expects that from us. He expects us to be able to give good answers, good answers to people about why we believe as we do. So I want to ask you this one question. How do you know that Christianity is the one true religion and all others are false? This is probably one of the big overarching questions because wrapped inside this question are a whole bunch of little questions like, how do you know you're the right ones? Why is your way the only way? What sets Christianity apart from any other world religion? Don't all roads lead to the same God and the same heaven? As long as you're sincere, does it really matter what you believe? I mean, all those questions are kind of wrapped up into this one big question. And I want to answer it for you this morning. And then I want to take that answer apart in pieces and really see uh, how God can help us to really know how to have conversations with people when those questions arise. So here's my answer. Because Christianity 
is exclusively different and in direct contradiction to all other world religions. And empirical evidence proves the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, those are some pretty bold words. Pretty bold words. Exclusively different than every other world religion. It's in direct contradiction to every other world religion. There's empirical evidence that proves the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I picked all those words uh, for that specific reason. They are bold, but I think they're all defendable. They're all defendable. And so let's start and let's take this answer apart a little bit piece by piece and see if we can find uh, some, uh, some uh, value in defending our faith. The first is this, because Christianity is exclusively different. I want you to see 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. And I know right now you're going, wait a minute, you can't prove Christianity with the Bible because all my friends who don't believe in Christianity don't believe in the Bible. I'm not doing that, but I want you to see what the Apostle Paul writes here because it's going to help us understand why Christianity is exclusively different. Here's what he wrote. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. Paul says something very interesting about the Christian faith. He admits in this moment that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not take place, Christianity collapses on itself. It collapses on itself. If, if Christianity is not exclusively different, then it's just like all other world religions. Paul's saying, listen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. See, the reality is, folks, while most all other world religions are based on moral lists and philosophies, Christianity is based on one historical truth. The resurrection of Jesus actually took place. See, what Paul's saying here, folks, is all of our chips have been moved to the center of the table, folks. We are all in. If Jesus rose from the dead, we're in really good shape. But if he didn't, this is all worthless. This is all a sham. None of this matters. He's admitting that. He's saying that because it's true. The reason that Christianity is different is because it's based on a historical event, not a, a philosophy or a list of do's and don'ts. Do we talk about do's and don'ts? Of course we do. Of course we do. Is, is there some theology and doctrine and philosophy in Christianity? Of course there is. But that's not what makes it Christianity. 
What makes it Christianity is that we put our faith and trust on one historical event that we believe Jesus rose from the dead and proved that he was indeed the Son of God. And it all rises and falls on this one particular truth. It's based on a historical fact. It's not based even on the Bible. Now, I know some of you would say, well, oh, Michael, that's freaking me out a little bit, you know, I mean, isn't our, isn't our faith based on the Bible? No, it's not based on the Bible. Do we use the Bible as God's truth for us? Absolutely. And we'll see why in a little bit. But that's not what makes us Christians. What makes us Christians is that we believe in the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, we should believe everything he said about himself. We should trust that he knows what it takes to go to heaven and raise from the dead if he did it himself, right? Now, now you all consult uh, uh, people of authority at times. You all consult experts, don't you? How many of you asked the neighborhood kid to come over and give you an estimate on your new deck? Anybody? Of course you don't. That would be foolish. Why in the world would you ask somebody's opinion who you know has no experience of building decks? Why would you ask him to help you build your new deck? You wouldn't. That would be silly. That would be foolishness. Why do we consult Jesus when it comes to our eternal life, because he rose from the dead. Now, I'm just saying, maybe I'm not a very smart guy, but when a dude raises from the dead, sorry, I said dude about Jesus. Some of you will freak out about that. <laughs> That's purely in the male form, okay? Uh, when a person raises from the dead, I think we should listen to him, don't you? I'd say they're pretty much an expert about life and death if they're able to raise from the dead. And so Jesus did raise from the dead, folks. We're going to see some evidence of that here soon. But that's one of the things that makes Christianity totally, totally different than any other world religion. The next part of that answer that I gave is that it's in direct contradiction to all other world religions. Now, wait a minute. Don't other religions teach that we should love one another? Don't other religions uh, teach that we should be kind to one another, that we should give to the poor and the needy? Of course, all other world religions, though, offer a way for us to behave well enough to receive whatever rewards that the religion offers. Christianity is exclusively different because it says that it, it's not what you do that determines one's eventual destination. Because, folks, we can't be good enough to determine our destination by our behavior. So what you believe about Jesus is the determining factor. That's a direct contradiction to every other world religion. Every other world religion says, hey, if you'll just do these things, if you'll just be this way. In fact, some of you uh, come from religions that say, hey, you're never really totally sure, but if you kind of do enough, you'll hope for the best, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, kind of keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. And when you die, hopefully things will work out and you'll go to heaven. Christianity, the gospel, is the opposite of that. It's not close to that. It's not similar to that. It's the opposite of that. You can't do enough good stuff to change your destination. The only hope you have is to say, I give. I, I give. I know that I can't be good enough to go to heaven, so I trust, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, a separate thing outside of myself, the Savior of the world, to pay for my sins because I cannot do it on my own. Do you see how that's opposite? It's the only world religion that says you can't do a thing to help yourself. 
I don't care how many self-help books you read or how many Joel Olstein sermons you listen to or how many seminars you go to that tell you how to be a good person. You can't be good enough. And that's in, in direct contradiction to every other world religion. Look what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that nobody can boast. It's very clear. The gospel is you can't save yourself, which is what every other world religion teaches you to do. And then Jesus was very exclusive when in John 14, 6, he said this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus states that he's the only way to heaven, and it's through him that we can get there. If we determine that he really rose from the dead, then we should trust him to communicate clearly what that way is and what that truth is. And he does. And he does. So we see here that Christianity is in direct contradiction to all other world religions. And I want to make this statement. While other world religions teach how morally good a person has to be to gain acceptance or entrance, the gospel teaches the opposite. There is no possible way to be right, and so we need a Savior who offers forgiveness. This is, this is important to understand, folks. If you have in your minds that Christianity is just a little bit off Islam. It's just a, it's a little bit different than, uh, biblical Christianity is a little bit different than Catholicism or, or biblical Christianity is just a little bit different than Mormonism. You're wrong. You're wrong. The last part of my answer is this, and we're gonna spend the rest of the time here today. Empirical evidence proves the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I chose those words very carefully. It doesn't prove scientifically the validity of the resurrection. It just proves the resurrection. Here's, here's, here's something that always happens. Uh, I used to work with a whole bunch of scientists, and I don't know how I got a job with a bunch of scientists, but I did. And I work with them all the time. When we talk about Christianity, they say, well, you can't scientifically prove that Jesus was the Son of God. And I would say, you're exactly right. I can't. By the way, you can't scientifically prove that George Washington was the first president. Did you know that? You can't do it scientifically. In fact, when it comes to proving things scientifically, folks, in the history of the world, we're, we're just barely scratching the surface. I mean, DNA's only been around, you know, for a while. I mean, I was a kid when we first discovered fingerprints. Not quite that bad, okay? But I mean, but I mean if you think about proving things scientifically, we've just begun to scratch the surface. People haven't done that for years and years and years and years and years, and yet we've had court cases. How do they do that? Because it's not scientific proof, it's historical legal proof. It's legal historical proof. Here's the difference. Scientific proof says, I can prove something scientifically by repeating it over and over. If I bring in a, a, an aquarium and fill it with water, and I make a statement, ivory soap floats. And I begin to unwrap a bar of ivory soap, and I drop it in the tank, and it floats. And then I do another one, and I do another one, and another one. And I can prove scientifically that ivory soap floats, because it's repeatable. You can't prove that George Washington was the president scientifically. You have to use legal historical methods that look at the evidence that points to that fact and stack it up against the other evidence. And that's what I want to show you how to do for the rest of this morning.
By the way, a person that denies the points I'm about to share with you, uh, they've placed their own desire to believe what they want over legal historical evidence. It's like a person, if they want to say, listen, I don't believe George Washington was the president. Okay, great. Don't believe it. You're wrong. But you can believe wrong stuff if you want to. All right, so let's take a look. Here are some points, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, but I think I'll go slow enough you can write them down if you want. And the first one is this. These are, these are points, folks, that, that not only uh, Christian history believes, that even secular history confirms these things. Even secular history confirms that a religious man named Jesus lived. Now, back in the day when I was a kid, about every 10 years, a guy would come around and sell us a new set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. I don't know if you've ever seen those at your parents' or grandparents' house. But they'd, they'd bring us these wonderful books that had all the information of the world in it before the internet. And, uh, and so we'd use those for all of our research papers. I remember in school getting out the old Encyclopedia Britannica and seeing two or three of them and looking at all the information in those. That was like the source of information that was accepted as normative in the, in the world. Okay. Now, of course, we've got the internet and and you know, Wikipedia, where everybody can kind of say anything they want, so you got to be careful what your sources are. But, but even secular people agree, secular historians agree that a man named Jesus actually lived, lived and had followers in the time of Jesus. They also agree that this man was crucified. There is actual non-religious historical evidence that a man named Jesus was crucified about this time. And, and it also shows that he was, he was crucified for the specific purpose of claiming to be God. He also was buried. All sources agree that Jesus was buried in a tomb. Now, up to this point, folks, almost all sources, both Christian and secular, agree. And a lot of your friends who are far from God would still go, oh, okay, I can buy those three. I can kind of buy those three. His tomb was discovered empty three days later. Now, here's where they begin to go, okay, I know that all these sources agree with this fact, but here's the important thing. What's the reason that it was empty? That's really key. That's really key. Because that reason starts to stack the evidence either for the resurrection or against it. And so we're going to look at some of that here in a minute. But this is the biggest dispute in all of this information that I'm giving you this morning. Why? He was gone is really what the absolute point is. The next point, Jesus' death caused his followers to lose hope and despair. Nobody disagrees with this. And, and by the way, isn't this just normal human reaction? Listen, if you had left your home and your family and you said, I'm going to go with this guy and I'm going to follow him for three and a half years and, and learn to be like him and do what he does and, and all of this stuff, and then you're expecting to raise, you know, to, to superiority somehow through him, and he gets killed. Wouldn't we all be in despair? Of course we would. This is not debatable. This is a normal human reaction to the death of Jesus. His disciples were crushed, crushed. Then his disciples had experiences that they determined were evidence of his resurrection. Now, I'm not saying that they absolutely were at this point, but I stated it specifically this way for this reason. His disciples determined that Jesus had resurrected because of the experiences that they had. And by the way, 
Look at the way that they responded to these experiences. These men went from uh, just, in fact, the next point, let me just go to it. The disciples were transformed by their belief in the resurrection. Something happened, folks, to totally change the disciples from these depressed, broken-down cowards into these bold preachers excited about preaching about the resurrection. Something big had to happen. I'm not saying at this point it absolutely was the resurrection, although it was. Uh, but I am saying something really big had to happen to take this group of guys from being just crushed in their spirit, not knowing what to do in life, and to go take on the world, sharing the gospel. In fact, it changed them so incredibly that the vast majority of the disciples died for their belief in the resurrection. This is key. This is really key, folks. In fact, 10 of the 12 apostles died for their faith in the resurrection, and and countless hundreds and thousands of others did also, but 10 out of Jesus' closest 12 did. Uh, John, we think, died of old age on the island of Patmos, and of course, we know what happened to Judas. All 10 other apostles were martyred for their faith in the resurrection. Now, think about that for just a minute. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. People don't die for what they know is a lie. Now, you can find people in history that have died for lies, but they thought it was the truth. You can find in the Encyclopedia Britannica a story of some Japanese soldiers on some remote islands that two or three years after World War II, as other troops came onto the island, they would begin to fight them because they had no idea the war was over. Some of them were even killed years after the war fighting for what they thought was the truth. They thought the war was still going on. They thought they were defending their nation and they died for a lie, but they thought it was true. That's the big difference, folks. The point is this. Whether Jesus rose from the dead or not at this point, these 10 guys absolutely believed it with all their might and there is no other, there is no other explanation. If they, if they go, hey, listen, you know, uh, things are going bad for us. Uh, they killed Jesus already, and they're probably going to kill us too. Hey, hey, what if we come up with a story? Let's come up with a story. How about, how about come up with a story that Jesus rose from the dead? We saw him. That'd be cool. Let's do that. And they all conspire together to come up with this story. You don't think one of them would crack when they're about ready to be crucified upside down? You don't think one of them would would give in when they're about ready to have their head cut off for their faith in the resurrection of Jesus? Of course they would have. Of course they would have. You can't find one man in history who died for what he knew was a lie. So these 10 men believed this with everything they had, even to the point of death. Next, the resurrection was proclaimed in Jerusalem where the tomb was. Now, why is that important? This is key because of the location. If I wrote a book today about the great earthquake that leveled Kansas City in 2016, how many copies do you think I would sell? And how long do you think that myth would continue? I'd probably sell two copies. My wife would buy one and my mom would buy one. I bet my sister wouldn't even buy one. You know, so I get two. Nobody would buy that because they would look at the cover and go, that's ridiculous. That's foolishness. That didn't even happen. That myth would die in a matter of days, hours. All you'd have to do is go, book cover, city skyline, nope, done, done. 
Folks, the reason that this did not go away was because they couldn't put it down. It was right in front of them. It was happening right in front of them. We got an empty tomb. We got a bunch of people that are saying they saw Jesus. Nobody can come up with this body. We can't put this thing down. And then one other thing I want to add is the great persecutor, Saul, was transformed by the risen Savior. This guy was one of the biggest persecutors of the Christian church in its early history. He was killing Christians as quick as he could, and something ginormous in his life had to happen to not only make him convinced to stop killing them, but to become the greatest cheerleader of Christianity in history. Something huge had happened. I mean, this is not like, hey, he found a brochure on the ground about Christianity and he picked it up and read it and goes, yeah, I should consider that. That's not what I were talking Something happened big, big, big in this guy's life to turn everything he believed, everything he'd been taught, everything he'd put his life into his whole life, and he was very zealous about it, turn it upside down. Now, as you begin to see all that evidence that starts to stack up for the resurrection, for the fact that the resurrection may have happened, that's a pretty big stack. And by the way, we've just touched the surface on that. But let me show you the six top alternative theories. Now, there's about 100 theories, and some of them get so goofy they're kind of crazy. But even a couple of these you're going to laugh at because you're going to go, how can people possibly believe that? So here's the first alternative theory. And what we're doing here is we're, com we're comparing theories to the resurrection. Because when we see all the evidence for the resurrection, and then we see the evidence for the other theories, we want to pick the most plausible theory as the truth, which is what you do in a court case, by the way. So the first alternative theory is this. Christ's resurrection was a myth. I alluded to it already, but listen, there were many opponents of Jesus in the first century that could have and would have corrected any level of distortion in the truth, but they didn't, and they couldn't, because the truth was right in front of them. If, if this was really a myth, you know how they could have just put an end to Christianity? Uh, by the way, here's Jesus' body. We just moved it from that place to this place. There it is, done. Be just like my book. And by the way, if you think that, that Jewish men in this culture would come up with a myth that Jesus rose from the dead, that is totally against who they are. Totally against who they are. Uh, Jewish people of this time were very much opposed to mythical deities of any kind. This is one of their biggest kind of pet peeves. So they would never have made up a story about a deity that didn't happen. That's a pretty weak and ridiculous theory. The second is that the resurrection accounts are filled with contradictions. Now, contradictions um, can be determined in a few ways. So let me tell you, uh, if you've got a situation where you've got a man on four different corners of an intersection, and there's a terrible crash in the middle of the intersection... And four men go to court and say exactly the same thing with exactly the same words. What is the judge going to think? They've colluded. They've talked about this outside. They've got their stories together. And he's going to say, none of you are credible witnesses. None of you are credible witnesses. Because when you read the resurrection story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are some small discrepancies. But contradictions and discrepancies are two different things. 
A contradiction is the blue car uh, was going through the green light and the red car came speeding down the street and ran the stoplight and T-boned it. Now, those four guys are going to have a very different view on how that happened. But they'll probably all tell the same story of how the red car hit the blue car. If one of them says, well, the blue car uh, was pulling out and the red car had the green light and the blue car rushed out really fast so he could T-bone him, well, now that's a totally different deal. But when we look at the differences, the discrepancies in the resurrection story about who ran to the tomb, who got there first, how many angels there were, you got to understand these guys were writing the truth about this stuff at at God's uh, leading. But years after it took place, I can barely remember what I had had for lunch last week, much less write the details about a historical event that happened 30 years ago. So the fact that there are small discrepancies that don't change the story any, I want you to see that historically, that's evidence that they're telling the truth, not evidence that they're telling lies. If they all said the same thing with the same words, that's evidence that they would be lying. But these four men on four different corners of an intersection, they have a different perspective on it. And so they tell a little bit of different details when they go to court. And when the judge hears all of the large things the same and hears minute details different, he's like, okay, they're all telling the truth from their perspective. And it happened. This particular uh, 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 myth or uh, alternative theory doesn't hold much water. Doesn't hold much water. The third one, miracles are not scientifically possible. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because here's the problem with this theory. It's not a scientific conclusion. It's a philosophical assertion. Has anybody studied every miracle and determined that they're all false? I I don't think they've done that. This is not a scientific conclusion. And by the way, when you get into conversations with your friends and they begin to make assertions that aren't true as part of their question, you you stop them. You call them down. So if they start off a question now, Uh, since the theory of evolution has clearly proven that the first two chapters of Genesis are untrue, and they begin to ask their question, I stop them right there and go, wait a minute, you've just made an assertion. You've just come to a conclusion without evidence. I haven't come to that conclusion. And by the way, neither is half the world. So let's not go there. But see, when when we say that miracles aren't scientifically possible, like the resurrection of the dead, there's no evidence to prove that. In fact... There is exactly as much evidence for the proof that, it, that miracles do happen than that miracles don't happen. So you see you're, you're, you're executing equal faith when you choose to believe either. Equal faith. Look at number four. His body was stolen. Now, folks, this is totally absurd. This is totally completely absurd. These guards guarding Jesus' body would have been killed if they allowed somebody to steal the body. These guys were experts at guarding things like this. I mean, that's what they'd given their life to. They were literally guarding the body of Jesus with their lives because they knew if something happens to this, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be right next to Jesus. And I'm not going to let that happen. So I'm going to guard this thing literally with my life. This is not a very good uh, way to think. It's not a very good theory at all. I'll take number five. Jesus only passed out and later recovered from his injuries. Do you hear how absurd that is? Again, this is completely ridiculous. You'd be suggesting, if you wanted to take this theory, you would be suggesting that trained professional killers 
failed to complete their job, and they only hurt Jesus bad enough to be injured for three days. I was in the hospital for three days when I got my appendix out 40 years ago. Okay? So to recover from a beating like he took, to recover from a crucifixion like he went through in three days, even if that was true, it'd still be a miracle. But folks, these guys, the guys that crucified Jesus, they were pros. They made sure he was dead before they put him in the tomb. And then number six is this one. And by the way, these are the best six. I'm not even going to number 49. You'd you'd think I'm totally crazy. Number six is this. The disciples were hallucinating based on their desire for it to be true. Now, if only one disciple had seen Jesus, I might say there's slightly some credibility to this. These guys didn't want this to be true, that Jesus was dead. Uh, For him to go... Oh, man, I want it so... Oh, is that Jesus I see? Oh, it's kind of a shadow. But I really hope it's Jesus. And, and you can convince himself maybe psychologically that he'd seen Jesus. Maybe he even get, even get a friend in on it. Hey, do you see that shadow over there? doesn't look like Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I think it might be Jesus. Really? Because I think it's Jesus too, don't you? Uh, yes, I, I think it might be Jesus. Let's go tell everybody we've seen Jesus. Maybe, maybe one or two. But we see that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time. Now, folks, you couldn't even get 500 people to have the same hallucination about the same thing in the 60s, okay? (laughs) I I mean, that's just totally and completely absurd. That is ridiculous. So listen, folks, what we've done here today is I've tried to to give you a little bit of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, the things that we know are true and why they're true. We've looked at the six kind of best theories against it. And now, as a jury member, we have to come up with an answer. What's the best answer? Now, I want to apply Occam's razor to this. And if you don't know about Occam's razor, Occam's razor states that the simplest hypothesis possible is the most likely to have taken place. It's really deep, because really what Occam's razor says is, the most likely thing is the most likely thing. Okay? That's really what it says. And so when you look at all of this evidence, you weigh it against its, each other. What's the most plausible thing that happened? What's the most plausible thing? The most plausible, the most likely is this. The simplest and most logical belief is that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore should be trusted as the source of truth. Folks, I am not a Christian because I decided one day I'm just going to close my eyes and pick a world religion and step out in faith and hopefully somebody will catch me. No, 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 I didn't do that. I looked at the evidence and I said, I, I want to have an intelligent faith. And it's still faith, folks. I can't, I can't absolutely prove 100% scientifically that Jesus rose from the dead. But when I look historically at the evidence, I can't come to any other logical conclusion that makes better sense than that Jesus rose from the dead. And folks, if he rose from the dead, everything else he said was true. He trumps all knowledge. He wins. He is the greatest source of truth on the planet, and we should listen to him for everything else. Now, I share all this information to you, and I hope it'll help you as you have conversations with your friends, and they say, well, you know, I don't, I'm not a Christian because I just, I just can't close my eyes and jump off a cliff in faith. Nobody, I'm not doing that. Hopefully you're not doing that. Be smart about your faith. Does it still take faith? Of course it does. But it's not a blind, unintelligent faith. 
It's a knowledgeable, understandable faith that makes the most sense. And so I want to put that arsenal in your pocket so that when you get in these conversations, you can still not be a jerk. You can be kind and sweet and loving toward them, but still share with them the truth about what's happened. Because if they don't accept it, folks, they will be cut off from God forever. And I want us to really, I want us to really start getting this. I think we get it in our heads. I want us to really start getting this in our hearts when our friends and neighbors, when our loved ones, when our family, when they die and haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus to forgive their sins, they don't go to a better place. They go to an awful place, an awful place that they will never get out of. I want us to, in love, be able to share with them the truth about who Jesus is and what he did so that they would be convinced to turn their lives over to him. And I want to give you, over the next few weeks, we want to give you uh, the arsenal to be able to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you again that you loved us so much you sent him to die for us. Father, thank you for uh, showing us the evidence that exists uh, to help us to have an intelligent faith. Oh, we trust you, Lord. We trust you with tomorrow and Wednesday and Saturday and two weeks from now and five years from now and 50 years from now. But God, we thank you that you've given us something to hang on to. Help us to communicate that to our friends and loved ones that are far from you. Help us to uh, uh, see that sharing uh, the gospel with them, sharing with them about the resurrection of Jesus is like untying them from a train track. God, help us to see that so that we can love them enough to share and be bold with them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.